Welcome to The Best in Sales, your dose of education, inspiration, and entertainment with stories of the biggest wins. Maybe a typical sale was a pallet. What I sold was a truckload. And the biggest losses. We thought it was a slam dunk. It was a $15 million project. And, you know, get the phone call in the 11th hour that, sorry, you guys didn't get it. From the best salespeople in the world. Sales is not selling used cars. It's really about helping your customers to solve problems. And now your host, Owen Groman. My guest today is Forrest James. Forrest is triple tasking. He's the president and CEO of Entertribe. He's the founder of Earthprint Technologies, and he's the vice president of the North Americas for Datasat Technologies. Forrest was referred to me by Shonda Miller, our first guest on The Best in Sales, and we had a great conversation about what it's like selling into tribal governments. We talked about the lessons he learned from his mentors in sales, and we talked a little bit about sushi at the end of the show as well. Hope you enjoy today's episode of The Best in Sales. So, Forrest, welcome to The Best in Sales. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here. When Shonda told me about uh, the podcast you've, you've got going, I was, I was pretty excited to be included, so I appreciate it. Me too, me too. So the first question, when someone asks you what you do at a cocktail party or on an elevator or whatever, not the elevator pitch per se, but what do you tell them? Uh, you know, like like we had talked about a little while ago, it kind of depends on, on who I'm talking to uh, because I'm somewhat of an entrepreneur. Uh, since I was a kid, I pretty much had uh, my own business in one form or another. And depending on, on who I'm talking to, it you know it can be uh, somewhat complicated or nice and simple. Uh, the simple answer is usually I own a few different businesses. Uh, two of them specialize in working with tribal governments. And the other one uh, shoots marketing and advertising material for other companies. And I've got teams to support those companies. Uh, and I usually keep it as simple as that. But most of my secular career is really divided into two categories. One, uh, non-native, and then two, native, really. Okay. So we definitely have to explore that. But the first thing is I heard entrepreneurial, I heard marketing, I heard advertising, but I did not hear the word sales anywhere in there. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, Shonda and I have had uh, many a conversations about this. And yeah, I, you know, I've never really uh, pictured myself as a salesman, but I've always known that, you know, even since, since, the, since I was a kid, you know, in some form or another, I've been a salesman. And really, you know, I think my father's generation, and I, this is probably why it's not as much in my vocabulary. My father's generation, you know, there's a certain stigma to uh, to sales, but with mine, it's been a little bit. So it was never really around. But with my generation, I think it's uh, it's not as much. I think it's being redefined. You know, after it, words tend to create different meaning over time. You know, and I think with my generation, sales has just not been a part of it. But uh, in essence, I mean, like I said, you know, we're all salesmen from the time we're asking for a later curfew with our parents to, you know, to our first job. Well, it's interesting. Nobody yet has brought up the generational thing yet. I mean, it's still pretty early in the uh, in the history of the best in sales here, but we haven't really crossed that. So I, I want to explore that a little bit. You feel like it was uh, your father's generation, as you said, sales had the stigma. But what do you think is changing over time? What do you think is different now? Well, like I said, I think words change over time. And my father's generation's got this, I, I would say it's probably the 70s to 70s to the 80s, maybe even as far back as the 60s, where you automatically associate sales with um, with a guy that's got a little bit, you know, a little bit of a balding head and maybe some chest hair and a gold chain. And, and, uh, and that's sort of what, uh, <laughs> that's at least what I had always pictured. Uh, but I think sure. it's it's changing very much in that, well, let me put it this way. 
I had a colleague, her name is Luann Lineber. She now, um, she used to work with us and now she works at a different company, but she always said, Forrest, if you're, you know, if, if your lips are moving, you're not selling. And when she said that, it was, it was in stark contrast to everything else I've ever heard or seen about sales. And it really made me take a different look at it. And I think for my generation, there's those different looks that are sort of adding up as a collective. And sales is, is not becoming that, you know, that picture of a, a guy in the 70s in a car parking lot um, trying to sell cars. It's, it's really become about, uh, especially during the recession, I mean, it's, it's become about being creative with um, ways to generate revenue, ways to build businesses. There's businesses today that I've got that I never would have built had the recession not hit. So I think mm-hmm. from that standpoint, you know, sales has taken a different shape for me anyway. So for you, you're involved in, we were talking before the show, you're involved in, what, three three separate businesses? Yeah, these are totally different businesses. So I grew up on an Indian reservation in Northern California, Southern Oregon, so right right up where all the redwood, te- redwood trees meet the ocean. And um, so I grew up around Indian country and tribal government, and I grew up going to council meetings and understanding um, to a small degree what the needs of, of Indian country are, at least for my tribal government anyway. And they're all very young governments. So uh, let's see, right when I first came into contact with the owner of uh, what used to be DTS, Steven Spielberg's old company, which is now Datasat, Phil Emmel, you know, he said, Forrest, I, you know, I hear you're from an Indian reservation. I know you're up there working with your tribe on a documentary. Um, would you be willing to help me do a market study on the Native American market? I said, sure. He said, I'm thinking about building a company um, by the name of Dataset Technologies that provides last mile equipment. I was like, well, I don't know what that means, but I can help you figure it out. Um, and this was kind of my introduction into the industry. So he flew me around, and I met with uh, tribal governments all over the U.S. and Canada. So up in Canada, you have First Nations. In the U.S., you have uh, Native Americans or tribes. And as I met with them, I found that there was, a, there was multiple needs. Because sitting down with tribal councils, you're, they're governments. So you have health care, you have educational systems, you have gaming, you have tribal enterprise, uh, first responders. I mean, it's, it's got all the makings of government most of the time. So uh, for Intertribe, I've got a director of grant services. He brings in all the grant funds. So we bring in money to tribes to build out telcos. Essentially, we help build tribally chartered competitive local exchange carriers, incumbent local exchange carriers, and help build out all the infrastructure. And the tricky bit about that is really we're talking about governments. So if you've ever worked at the speed of government, it can be quite linear. Um, And in this case, I've got two tribal governments that we're partnering up under this one corporation. So um, there's the Cheyenne River Sioux. They have their own telephone company. You've got the Navajo tribe. Navajo, Navajo Nation has their own telecommunications authority and telco. Um, there's, there's, I think, 12 tribes in the U.S. that all have their own lack of some sort. Okay. And so when you're selling to these tribal mm-hmm. governments, I mean, I know a little tiny, tiny bit about selling to governments. It's never been a big part of my uh-huh. career. But like you said, it can move at kind of a slower pace. But is there is there anything else unique about about selling to them? Uh, absolutely. I think working with tribes, trust is a huge factor. So when we start talking about sales, I mean, really, what are we talking about? Relationships and and how you foster those relationships and and really listened, you know, to to what the needs are. With tribes, you kind of just need to know how to navigate. People often have a tendency to think, well, within tribes anyway. Oh, if I go to tribal council, that's where I want to go. It's really not. What you want to do is work through them like any tribe, any government, and they've got a system in place. 
So if you're selling to them, trust is a big factor, and following that system will help you earn their trust. Um, it also helps if you're a native company and introduce yourself in your own language and, and so on and so forth. So culturally, you know, there's a lot of things that are different. Uh, it's very different in that with tribes, it's pretty customary to present a gift. So I have, my father's a, he makes feather boxes and, and acorn paddles and things like that. So with all of the, my customers, at some point in time, they've received some sort of native gift from my tribe. So that's very different. Mm-hmm. So when you're there with a, you know, when you're talking to whoever your key contact is there, I mean, do you approach the tribal government and as are you known as a as the salesperson or the sales guy to them, or how are you considered, or how do you position yourself to them? What do they think of you as? Uh, well, for Intertribe, I am the president of Intertribe, so they typically just I don't know. I guess they see me as as the guy with the solutions, which is sales. I mean, really, sales. You're That's looking great. at solutions. Um, I think the key thing with tribes and with non non native communities. Especially if you're in sales, and one thing I always try and remember is one size doesn't fit all. You don't want to be selling a square widget if they, you know, if they it's circle and that's what they need. Uh, nobody wins in that case. So really listening to them and, and seeing what their individual needs are. And the same applies uh, to the distribution channel, to the different value-added resellers that we work with and whatnot. So I guess there is some there's threads that are common throughout both markets. Mm-hmm. Now, you're with Datasat, and I don't know a ton about them, but I imagine, are, are you selling at this point? I mean, you explained how it started, and you were bringing Datasat into these uh, tribal governments. But at this point, are you is that still exclusively where you focus? Or no, you, not at all. No, not at all. Um, okay. So two things happened when Datasat Technologies was born. The owner of the company, Phil, who was a mentor of mine, said he wanted to build that company. I said, that's great, Phil. I want to help you build it, but I want to build the native version of your company. So that's that's my third company is Earthprint Technologies. That focuses on the tribes. Um, what I do for Datasat, I currently sit as their vice president for North America, which doesn't mean a whole lot. It just means that I'm usually the one that gets in trouble if things don't go right. Um, but it, uh, you know, I guess it's been about a year and a half that I've actually stepped out of the native market and into the non-native market. And it's it's been great. It's actually been it's been very productive and a great learning experience. And I think there's one thing I keep being reminded of every day is that the more I learn, the less I know. So, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about the comparison between the two, because it sounds like you spent at least, you know, you're a young guy, but you spent some portion of your career focused on the native market, as you called it. Now you jump over into the non-native market, and I'm not saying you'd had no experience outside of that, but I'm just interested in the contrasts between, you know, you mentioned how important it is to be part of the culture and to approach the native market or the tribal governments, um, you know, and, and, and how you do that and how that really works for you with your business and with your, your you know, the truth of your background. You don't have that necessarily, um, at least not as as with as much clarity, maybe, um, to the non-native market. So how do you... How do you solve that? How do you do that for the non-native market? What do you find there? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. And you're right, actually, with most of my experience being in the native market, when it comes to telco anyway, uh, having mm-hmm. spent a lot of years in the film industry, I mean, we're sort of doing the same thing that we're doing now. You're managing, um, you know, people's needs and trying to come up with a solution that solves that need. Um, with films, you're doing that. And so I got to, you know, I understood a little bit about how to interact in the non-native corporate uh, telco world, and I would say that 
uh, it's, well, I don't know. I, I think I learned quite quick, and what I typically do is get mentors really quickly. I mean, I, I've got probably a dozen different mentors in a dozen different industries that I learn something from every single one of them. Shonda is, I would say, one of my mentors when it comes to the non-native market. And I told her that when I first met her. I said, now I'm fresh out of a different market. I know where all these things fit, and a lot of what the non-native market is building, I help the native governments build with local, state, and federal governments. So the education sort of transferred, but the nuances when it comes to selling, you know, when it comes to being a good salesman, uh, didn't as much apply. But in the end, I, I love people, and I'm a people person, and I think, um, you know, that helps. Got it. Well, I asked you to send me over some info to help me better f get a feel for the direction that we could take this. And you mentioned on the yeah. sheet sales, the number of years in sales, I asked you, right? And you say in one form or another, I've been in sales my entire life. So that's a comfortable thing for you to say now. But was it always a comfortable thing for you to say? We talked about that generational gap. Was there a time when you would have said, no, I'm not in sales. I'm not a sales. A sales guy is a sleazy guy. Yeah, there would there would have been a time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we even in the film industry. I mean, we we'd write into the scripts characters that represented quote unquote salesperson. Uh, so yeah, there was especially in the beginning uh, working with DataSat. I you know I didn't want to be known as a salesperson. I think what changed that really quickly is um, the, my colleague Lou Ann, who I had worked with, and when she, she sent me a disc, I don't I don't remember what. It was like a whole packet of how to be a good salesperson. And, you know, I was a little like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm interested in this. And, you know, salespeople aren't listening. You know, they're just trying to sell something. And she just said, absolutely not, Forrest. A good salesperson is just listening, not even saying anything. Because the more you listen, the more you're going to see where the need is. And if you can fill it, there's value to be had in saying, you know what? This might not be the right fit for you. I like that. I think I like Luann. I think I need to have her on the best in sales. You know what? You should. She's right now. She's with uh, Erickson, and she's she's amazing. She's one of the people that really helped me. Um, she's like the past version of Shonda for okay. me, I guess. She really, you know, helped me to um, be able to sit in these in these larger board meetings and and be able to hold my own. She taught me how to do that because there was a time where I couldn't. Um, but when it comes to sales, yeah, she changed the whole tune for me. She helped redirect once that word meant to me and after that it doesn't bother me wow so really you can you i mean you're not being shy about this you're crediting one person with with really and i understand right like so maybe she helps you and probably then you start to just see things differently and then a lot of stuff happens that makes you feel better about it yeah really what we're talking about is perspective and right. one person may have planted a seed and then one person may have come and watered it and then another person may have come and you know cultivated the soil if that makes any sense it does it makes a lot of sense so let's go way back, even before that, and I don't know, however far back it needs to be. Do you remember the first time you could say the first sale that you ever had your entire life, even as a child? I found that as a kid, you know, I, like I, you know, I'd mentioned to you in the past, I love people. I really enjoy people for the most part. Um, and, and even as a kid, I found that if somebody needed help, for instance, my parents would have somebody over and their baby was crying. My natural instinct was to say, okay, what can I do to help? Let me go get a bottle. So, in, you know, in, in that sense, it was just looking for solutions, trying to find yep. a solution for a problem. Um, moving into, I guess, the, you know, into more of my secular, secular years was just the film industry. And I guess my earliest sales was convincing, you know, convincing producers to hire me to, to shoot there and market their movies. 
uh, in the end, are the photographs are what they use for building all their overseas distribution deals. All their local distribution deals are all based on the photographs because there's nothing to show yet. Um, I, I would say that that's some of the first actual where I sold something and, and actually made money on it. Other than that, the typical stuff of, you know, my, my brother had a paper route and, you know, we helped him with that. And Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's funny that you keep bringing up you're a person who gravitates towards finding solutions for people. It's a similar story to mine in a sense before I realized that I really wanted to be in sales. Um, you know, I actually, if you asked me throughout most of my childhood, I would have said that I wanted to be a sports broadcaster, play-by-play guy. Mm. Um, so it's funny. I've been in sales now for about 10 years, but only now with this podcast am I actually doing what I always said I wanted to do, kind of. Um, <laughs> Very nice. No, that's good. But, yeah, short story long, where I was going with that is that before I even thought about myself as being in sales, even actually when I had jobs in sales, before I thought of sales as being a point of pride, this would be like the getting yourself through college type of sales jobs. I did always take a lot of pride in being a solutions guy, as me and my friends would call it. You know, mm-hmm. when when there's a an issue, you want to solve it, right? You don't spend a lot of time whining or worrying. You spend a lot of time just fixing stuff. And so uh, I like how you, it sounds like you and I share that. We thought that way. And then when you think that through and you look over the however many years it's been for you, it's been 10, 12, whatever for me, it's not that surprising that we're now doing what we're doing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right, before we move into part two of the program, I want to share with our audience a product that is helping me sell more and will help you do the same. You know those customer visits where you leave saying, yeah, it was okay, like it was a first step and there might be something there, but it turned out you didn't really know the key challenges the customer was facing and you weren't talking to the person who can make the buying decision? Look, it happens to all of us except those of us using Boardroom Insiders. Boardroom Insiders maintains a database of the most in-depth executive profiles on the market from Fortune 500 companies and beyond and will even create new profiles of anyone else you want. I've been fortunate to use Boardroom Insiders myself, and it's mind-boggling. It's like you ask the sharpest, most detail-oriented person you know, hey, will you make me a profile of this customer I'm visiting? Except you don't have to do that. All you have to do is log into Boardroom Insiders and search the name of the company or person you're approaching. And they have over 1,000 companies in the database and growing. Visit BoardroomInsiders.com and click on See a Sample Profile to see what I'm talking about. And you can gain access to their free ebook, Best Practices for C-Suite Selling, right from the homepage. Boardroom Insiders, your secret weapon for closing bigger deals faster. So I want to talk about something in your career that we felt you looked at as like a game-changing sale. And I know in the context of this show where you haven't really, you know, you, again, obviously, you're more of the kind of selling founder CEO type. You've got the VP role at Datasat, where you're obviously in a leadership position. So you're maybe not the, the you know, the, the classic worked his way up from account manager into senior sales leadership. But nonetheless, I always like to ask people, if you're willing to think in this context, to think of something as a sale, can you take us through what you would call the biggest sale of your career? Sale in my life. That's a pretty big question. I think for me, because I love people, I love my culture. Um, when I had first started my company, uh, the native one, I, you know, I had spent a lot of time with the different tribal communities. I saw the kids, I saw the poverty, I saw the, you know, I saw all the things that they faced struggling as new and um, very young governments. And, and it wasn't, you know, that being a natural uh, born 
solution provider type of guy, I always wanted to fix it. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to, how can I help you? How can I fix it? And uh, one sale in particular had to do with a uh, tribe in Northern California, Southern Oregon, just a sister tribe of mine, actually. And, and they had they had over 2,000 phone outages a year, uh, power outages all the time. And this is about 600 homes in this community, so not a lot. But enough to where, you know, all of the surrounding lacks, so Verizon and Charter and, and a number of different companies, I should just say, um, would always include this community in their grant requests for, I don't know if you were around or remember the NTIA ARA funding days, so BIP and BTOP funding. There was a big push for large 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollar grants. Okay. Uh, they would, uh, you know, different incumbents would always take the this community and just throw it into their grant, knowing that the federal government would be like, "Oh, these guys really need help." Long story short, um, Luann and myself and another colleague had uh, driven to the tribe and said, "Listen, we're looking for a really good case study." Phil wanted a good, solid case study where he can build his product, um, sell it, and, and test it out and build a nice, solid piece of technology. So we went out there and we did that and data set and Intertribe invested in writing a grant for $1.1 million. Um, shortly after that for uh, $6.5 million for the same tribe in the same community. And I would say that this isn't, even though, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big sale. It's big in that it is a project that's helping so many people. We, when we, every time we go out there, we film and interview the kids at school. We interview the teachers. We interview the tribal council members. We interview the elders. And I would say about half of them have all teared up in their interviews just saying how difficult it is to be living in the middle of the digital divide. Hmm. Wow. Um, so that, that, uh, that sale got national news most of last year, 2014. Um, it's funded by the California Public Utility Commission. They have given the tribes um, a good chuck and change to build 80 miles of fiber and wireless throughout five communities. So I would say that's the biggest one and the most rewarding. Yeah, there's a couple different metrics you can use to qualify or judge how big a sale was, right? I mean, for for the classic salesperson, you're talking about revenue and gross profit and commission checks and all that stuff, and that's and that's fine. That's I, we celebrate that on the best in sales because Absolutely. we obviously assume that that's selling a worthwhile product to a customer that needed it, and you deserve the benefits of that. But you're taking it to a little bit of a different level there, Forrest, when you talk about the number of people helped being the uh, metric you use to judge your biggest sale of your career. So that's that's pretty cool. Well, and that you know, and I don't know, maybe that's just uh, the naive side of me, which is which is okay. I do I do know that there's been sales. We're broken even, that later paid off in a big way when it comes to margin. There's mm-hmm. been sales where uh, it was a really high margin and later, you know, was a very difficult, difficult and expensive customer. So I guess it just depends from one to the next. Um, yeah, so tell us about one of the difficult ones. That was my next question, was the toughest experience you've had in, in, in sales, quote unquote. Do you, your low point kind of where you... You feel like whether it was something that you could have done differently or it was just something that just wasn't working. Do you have a, a story like that for us? Um, when you're a rookie, sort of. I'm somewhat of a rookie. I've got seven years in this industry now. Um, you know, you make mistakes. And some of the mistakes, you know, when it comes to the tribal market, you know, these are three and four and sometimes five-year projects. So your mistakes may not even, you may not even figure out you made a mistake for at least two years. 
and then you may realize that you made a mistake and it'll keep giving for at least a year before you're able to correct it. So those are the tough ones. Um, and primarily working with the federal government. We author a, a tri- an article in the Tribal Net newsletter every quarter. And the one coming out, uh, or the one that was out last quarter, um, was directly dealing with the pros and cons of working with federal government when it comes to telecommunications projects and how to overcome the obstacles. Um, oh. And that, that whole article was written based on this mistake. Wow. Uh, so we have a written form for your answer then. We need to get that link. We need to, I'll put that link on the website. So if you just Google TribalNet online, it'll pop up. And yeah, like I said, last year that was, you know, you can see a lot of the hiccups that we made in that. Uh, this year as well, uh, some of the things, and a lot of the hiccups that I made are actually in Indian country for the most part because it's, there's so many moving parts. Um, as far as in the non-native market, Sales that I just was kicking myself over uh, is, you know, in the past not under, maybe not as taking, not having taken enough time to really understand and pull out of the customer, you know, what their true needs are. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the art world, if somebody says, paint me a picture of a dog, you say, okay, is it a four-legged dog, three-legged dog, is it brown, is it green? You know, you ask all these different questions. But even then, you know, you could paint a dog and it's still, they pictured it on a step and not in a field. Right. So I think what I, you know, what I've learned is that uh, really drilling down to what the customer's needs are, and in some cases, they don't know what they need. They just know what the problem is. So backtracking from what the problem is to the solution uh, is something I take more time in doing. Because uh, there are times where maybe I put a, tried to put a square peg in a round hole. So, Right. Patience is one of those traits that's pretty rare among really good salespeople. Usually, you know, in an interview, you're always asked that question, what's your biggest weakness? I have a feeling, and I've interviewed plenty of salespeople, um, you know, professionally as well as obviously for the show, but patience is often one of the big weaknesses. Yeah, I, I would definitely say patience is a weakness of mine. Um, I, I'm definitely the great idea guy that comes up with great ideas and starts balls putting balls in motion um but the patience to uh, meticulously go over all of that and everything that i get rolling um is why i have a good team because i can't necessarily do it all right yeah there's got to be a balance there's always got to be that balance because if you were too patient you wouldn't be an entrepreneur because there's certainly the ready fire aim element of entrepreneur entrepreneurship that you got to have and if you just waited for everything to be perfect or um, anything like that, you'd never you would have never been involved in three or four businesses at once like you are. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, which, you know, at one point was really maddening. And yeah. now now that I've got a team, you know, kind of supporting each one, there's value to be had and in letting people do their thing, even if it's not exactly how you would do it. So. Right. All right, Forrest. Well, it's been great to hear your story so far. So now we move into kind of part two of the best in sales, where we talk about some of your perspectives on sales. Um, try to use examples from your own career as much as possible. Sure. Um, the first question is usually I call it the sales gut check. It's the pricing dilemma about how do you price things. I want to ask you specifically because you've got a unique experience. We've never even come close to talking to someone who has who's you know had the experience you had had with um, you know selling to tribal governments. Is there a is there a, like a um, any kind of regulated kind of set pricing structures 
involved with that, certainly being a competitive carrier, obviously there's probably something there, but you know, is that, is that kind of a whole different animal in that world? Yeah, it's, well, it's a whole different animal um, in one sense, but in the end, list is list. So mm-hmm. in the tribal market, your list price is your list price, and what kind of discount your customers get is based on, one, how long they've been a customer, two, how easy they've been to work with, and so on and so forth. Maybe they're a, a regular customer, so they're, you know, their discounts are, are higher than others. Um, the where it's a different animal for tribes is that you know out of 564 tribes in the nation, the majority of them are grant funded, either state, feds, uh, or you know foundation grants, and those grants have tied to them uh, different policies. So the mistakes that you could, I guess, how you, you know if the question is how do you balance maximizing margin with being sure to win the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, with tribes, it can be very difficult. You may put in a quote, and two years later, that project may come to fruition, and you get a purchase order. Okay. So you're dying well. Better make sure that you were planning ahead. Right. Um, in other instances, it's not. They've got you know the general funds, or depending on you know if they've got their own telco and they separated business from government. That's a whole other animal um, mm-hmm. that we'll soon have an article coming out on. Um, but then it's simpler, and they submit purchase orders as they need them, and it's just like any other customer. I guess the difference is is that they have sovereign immunity. So you really just need to make sure as a company that, you know, you know how to work with them. Otherwise, you know, it, it can be a little difficult because uh, I don't typically ask my customers to waive their sovereign immunity. Right. Would you call sales more of an art or more of a science, and you have to pick a side? Oh, that's fine. Um I would say sales is an art, and the reason I would say that is because no one customer is the same, and art is very fluid, and it's open to interpretation, and there's multiple mediums, and there's ways of, you know, there's uh, different ways of selling art, and when it comes to sales, I mean, you got to be adaptable. you got to be able to be interpreted by your customer um, and, and be able to gain that rapport with them. Um, I'm sure there's some science in there somewhere, but uh, I know that colors on a painting operate at a certain frequency, so, you know, there you have it. But art is definitely the one I would pick. <laughs> That's probably the uh, explanation of the science of sales. I've not I've not heard that one yet. That is, a, I suppose that's the way. Usually when people talk about the science of sales, they're talking about the way that you, you know, can track calls and all that sort of stuff. You make a certain number of calls, it's a numbers game, and it's it's usually those kind of scientific uh, analyses. Ah, but, yeah, yeah, I see where you're going with it. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really not me. Gotcha. So marketing, this is a good question for you, Forrest, because when I asked you at the beginning of the show, you chose the word marketing to be part of your, um, you know, your kind of explanation of what you do, but you didn't say the sales word. So I say that marketing has become kind of sexier than sales in the 21st century. Do you agree with that? And how do you differentiate those two in your businesses? Um, I, yeah, I agree with that. Marketing, well, to me, sales is the result of great marketing. So if we were going to go back to that generational change of the word sales, uh, I would say it, it's painted very much like marketing. And if you can... You know, maximize your marketing. Your stuff's going to sell itself. Your people are going to be proud to work with it, and they're going to, you know, they're going to want to sell it, and people are going to want to buy it. I mean, every time I see a ad for Macintosh, I, I tell you, I want to buy one. Mm-hmm. Macintosh. We still call them Macintosh? No, we don't. I do. <laughs> you I guess do. I just dated myself. Yeah. That, <laughs> there you go. I think you're the youngest guest I've had on the show, by the way. So I don't know how you're dating yourself that way. All right. What's your favorite sales tool for us that you'd share with the audience? Is there any hardware or software, anything specific that you just can't get through the day without? 
sales tool? Um, that's a good question. I mean, there's your standard uh, Salesforce and Zoho and things like that. I use a lot of project management software, but something I can't get through the day without. Well, maybe that's extreme. I mean, most of us can get through the day with a laptop and a computer. I mean, sorry, a computer and a cell phone, um, and that's fine. But you know, just something that really makes a big impact on your business. Why don't you, I mean, explore Zoho, because I don't really know much about that, so our listeners probably don't either. Yeah, so, so Zoho is what my team uses for our CR, CRM tool. It's a Salesforce. It's a different version of Salesforce. It's just more cost-effective for the same tool. Uh, so you can produce your quotes, track your customers, run your campaigns, that type of thing. Um, as far as one of, one of the biggest tools that I use, and I think I heard Shonda mention it, is Lynda.com. I use that for my whole team. Uh, we have an account, and, and all of us use that for uh, training and just about everything. Is there a person or a book or a movie that to this day inspires you to be to do what you do and to be successful in sales? Yeah, to you know, I think you kind of said it a while back. Uh, is it possible to you know pick one person? Uh, for me, I, I would say it's all my mentors. I mean, every single one of them, uh, in some fashion or another, have planted those seeds that uh, really made me who I am today, secularly. And uh, I, I guess there's too many of them to, to name, but they all showed me the value of being teachable. I mean, in in the end, um, and I, you got to understand too that. So my tribe is a matriarchal government, right? So our, right. our tribal chairman or chief uh, can be a woman. And a lot of my colleagues and mentors have been women. And, uh, you know, one thing that women are able to do, uh, except for, you know, instead of us guys, is set their ego aside. And and a lot of my mentors have really uh, taught me to do that, um, although I'm a work in progress. And I know they got to remind me just about every day. So, Right. Gotcha. Well, Forrest, this has been a great show, and like a great sale, it's worth celebrating. So how do you celebrate a great sale? Sushi. Uh, I love sushi. I've eaten sushi all over the planet. And from a, just a surface level, yeah, you, our whole team will go out and enjoy a, a nice sushi dinner and uh, do that with my wife. My wife uh, helps run my companies as well. And, uh, yeah, that's really what we'll do to celebrate it. Uh, nothing too exciting, I guess. Um, What's the best sushi you've ever had? Where is the best sushi you've ever had? Where's the be- Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, that's a really big tough one. It depends on the town I'm in, city I'm in, or the country I'm in. Um, you don't have a sushi experience that just stands above the rest? Uh, you know, there was a place in San Diego that just blew my mind. There's a place here in Ashland, Oregon, where I'm at, um, called Star Sushi. See, I'm not the type of person that likes the fancy restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, if it's good sushi, I'll, I'll go to a fancy restaurant. But uh, I really judge the sushi based on their rice-to-fish ratio. If they've got mm-hmm. uh, a lot of fish and it's high turnover, then I love them. And the place I go to here in Ashland, Star Sushi, is actually just a small hole in the wall, mom-and-pop shop, and it's, mm-hmm. it is fantastic. They pack it full of all the goodies. Um, so it's good. Nice. Yeah, I love sashimi, so I don't worry about the rice-to-fish ratio. I just want the fish. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, sashimi's great. Well, Forrest, thanks so much for being on The Best in Sales. Remind folks how they can learn more about what you've done and what you're doing. I know you mentioned a couple of different things that can be found online, and I'll post those on the website when the show airs. But uh, what would be the best way to kind of um, you know reach out to you or, or find out more about what you're doing? You know, the be- the best way to keep it nice and simple is on LinkedIn. If you just look me up on LinkedIn, it's Forrest James, Forrest with one R. Uh, that's usually the best way. It, it really paints an overall picture of, of my companies, my team, what we do, 
um, yeah, that's that's probably the best way to do it. And there's links to your websites because you're obviously with multiple companies. People can find that that stuff right through LinkedIn. Oh yeah, yeah. LinkedIn really provides a, a way of making sense of of everything I got going on, which is quite a bit. So yeah, of course. Well, Forrest, thanks a lot. Great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate the time, Owen. Thank you for downloading the Best in Sales podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and visit our website at bestinsales.net.